Hello, America. Podcast today. I mean, who didn't we have on? We had we had the assemblyman from uh, California that has actually got a court case that they won to take the crown away from Gavin Newsom and his corruption and authoritarianism. Uh, we have Jason Whitlock on. We had the devil himself on with us today. <laughs> no relation to Jason Whitlock. I loved him. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have uh, <laughs> one of the women that just won in Congress who's part of the squad and... Not the squad. No, no, no. The the anti-squad. Yes, the thank GOP you. The GOP squad. Thank you. Uh, and we uh, we also had the, the uh, co-founder of The Federalist on with us today to talk about what's happening in with the Durham investigation. I'll give you a sneak peek. It's going to piss you off. Ugh. All this and more on today's podcast. And don't uh, miss uh, tonight's show with Glenn Beck, of course, and myself, Studios America. Oh right? my gosh, you're... Yeah. Your Eight. little show's on before mine? 8 p.m. Eastern, Studios America. Wow. 9 p.m. Eastern, Glenn TV. Couldn't get a better lead-in. No, me, that's huh? a really crappy lead-in. Wow. Uh, but you can go to blazetv.com slash Glenn if you would like to watch the lead-in anyway. Uh, and use the <laughs> promo code Glenn. It's 30 bucks off your subscription to Blaze TV. Just watch it because, I mean, you just, you'll have it on and you won't miss the beginning of the real show. You're listening to... The best of the Glenn Beck program. So over the weekend, uh, I follow uh, Sean Davis. He is the co-founder of um, uh, The Federalist. And I saw a tweet from him. A source familiar with Durham's ongoing investigation of the bogus Russian collusion operation tells Federalist Durham isn't doing anything. Dropping his investigations, he's worried about blowback from Biden. A separate source who has seen the evidence compiled during the course of Durham's investigation told the Federalist that there is more than enough evidence to indict multiple involved in the Russian collusion hoax and the operation to take down Donald Trump. I don't know if it's going to happen. Sean Davis, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. First of all, tell us what you know and you can tell us about what's going on behind the scenes. Right. So I, I think the, the most important thing to look at is to step back and kind of see the trajectory of this investigation, which Barr appointed Durham to do back in about mid-2019. It seemed to be going at the proper pace. Uh, they were developing leads. In fact, when that big inspector general investigation came out uh, last December in which Horowitz, the IG, said, oh, no, the predication for the whole crossfire hurricane was fine. You actually had Durham and Barr come out and say, no, that, that's not true. So fast forward through 2020, things are moving along. Barr himself goes on television and I think late August, right around when a Mueller and a Comey attorney was indicted for fabricating evidence and said, we're going to have all this out before the election. This shows that everything is proceeding as it should. And then something happened in early September. And every source I've talked to uh, about this has something changed in, in mid-September. Um, and that's when we started hearing leaks and getting indications from the media that maybe Durham didn't want to do anything before the election because it would look political. Can't have anything looking political, even though everything is political in America now. And so something changed in, in September. Uh, the momentum stalled. Any sort of uh, demand for indictment seemed to kind of fall away internally. And now uh, multiple sources I talked to are very worried that, you know, we might get a report 
uh, but they seem convinced, um, most, not all, most seem convinced that there's no indictments coming and that if we're lucky, we might get a report. That is unbelievable. So what do you have any idea what might have happened in September? I don't know. I, I, two sources I talked to over the weekend said they just they think Durham might have lost his nerve. He's worried that indicting here might look political and he doesn't want to look political. But what one does of he have the goods? Is, does he have uh, evidence of crimes? I've been told 100 percent, absolutely clear, incontrovertible evidence of crimes to support indictments. So then that to me, that doesn't make sense. Then this guy is an accomplice. I mean, it it doesn't matter if it's political or not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's like that's like the church saying, oh, let's not talk about, you know, let's not talk about these scandals because it's the church. No, it doesn't matter who you are. Justice is blind. If an injustice was done, it needs to be exposed. At what point? Is a, a prosecutor supposed to care about politics? Well, you're exactly right. And, and in fact, with everything being political now, um, the best way to actually keep politics out of things is to follow the facts, follow the law, and apply them evenly, without bias, without skewing towards one party. And if uh, a member of a certain party happened to do something illegal, they should be held accountable. If a member of another party did something illegal, they should be held accountable. So to the extent that maybe Durham feels it would look political, if he were to indict a host of uh, corrupt Obama-era administration officials for cooking up a a hoax, so be it. The facts are the facts. And what the problem we have now is we we basically have what appears to be a two-tiered justice system. Or if you have the right connections on the left, you get off scot-free. And if you have the wrong connections on the right, we're going to ring you up for anything. So uh, where's where's Bill Barr? That's a good question. You know, he, <laughs> he assures people that, uh, you know, it, it's not been dropped. It, it's it's going ahead. Um, but, you know, he I don't I believe him. That. I think it was a Fox interview in, in August where he said everything's happening. We're going to know before the election. And he's kind of disappeared since then, which is really disappointing because he has said all the right things thus far. We just haven't seen any actual results, which are the only thing that matter at the end of the day. I, I just I am so frustrated because we did our homework. You know, we really put a lot of time and energy for almost a year into what was going on uh, with this uh, investigation, what really happened, put all of the investigations in Ukraine and in impeachment, you know, the whistleblower, all of this stuff. And we have enough to at least convene a grand jury. We have enough. And I don't have access to things that they have access to. If we don't solve this, there is no faith in the republic or justice. I mean, even if everybody, if it goes to court and everybody is proclaimed innocent, it has to go to court. That's right. We, we can't have two systems of justice in this country, which is what we appear to have when, when Hillary can get off and be proclaimed by James Comey to be innocent because she didn't do anything illegal. Uh, when you have people in the Trump campaign who got rung up for the sole crime of just being involved with the wrong political candidate, uh, which many of them were targeted for. And when you have people like Comey and McCabe, who was fired for lying under the oath, 
get off scot-free while someone like General Flynn uh, was taken down because they didn't like his, his uh, foreign policy views, that, that's not a republic. That is, a, uh, that is rule of men. That is not rule of law. And a republic cannot survive where we have a two-tiered system of justice where your guilt or innocence depends entirely on your political connections. So this is why we are a, a nation divided. You know, they, I love how, you know, the left came out immediately after the election said, oh, finally, we can unite. What? Unite under what? As long as we agree with you? Is, is that how we unite? Nobody's actually talking about any uniting principles. And those principles are truth, justice, and the American way. It's freedom. It's freedom and liberty and the Bill of Rights. That's what was our unum. It's what brought people together. Without that unum, without the Bill of Rights and and a nation of laws and not of men, we have nothing to unite on. And this kind of corruption, if we go back to seeing the same kind of corruption, if not worse, because, you know, uh, Peter Schweitzer says, and I, I agree with him, that Biden was the most corrupt vice president in all of American history, which is saying something. If we see this kind of corruption and no one does anything and you have the press just being cheerleaders for it, what do we have left as a country, Sean? I, I don't think we have much, and it, it's a little bit laughable hearing these calls for so-called unity from the left. The left doesn't want unity. The left wants submission. Yes. This is, this is the institution that cooked up the Russian collusion hoax that said that Brett Kavanaugh, without any evidence, was the secret ringleader of a gang rape cartel that said the uh, young man who went to a Catholic high school was a racist because he went to a pro-life rally. Uh, th- these are not people who want our unity. They want our submission, which is why they've spent the last six to nine months burning down our cities, doxing conservatives, attacking Christians, banning people from going to church. They don't want unity. They want us to bend the knee. And I say no. So what does the average person do, Sean? You know, I, I was I I, I, I I was talking to somebody yesterday and I said, you know, so people just have to get up and speak out. And I said, you know, they did that. It was, it was called the Tea Party. They did that. And when it first started, it was about principles. It wasn't about politics. It was about principles. Um, and let's get behind the Constitution again. And it went awry. But I think the reason it went awry was because while it made Im- an impact, the people had the snot kicked out of them. And I think they were tired and thought, you know, enough. And that's why they looked for the biggest bully on the block, a guy who would stand up and say, hey, don't beat up on those people. That's those are my people. Uh, And now if Donald Trump can't do it, I think a lot of people think if he can't do it, what chance do we have? Which is a lie. But I think one that people buy into or at least feel. Right. It's so easy to feel discouraged. But but I think the thing that has always made this country great, that it's made it the greatest, most successful, most free nation on Earth, even in spite of all our difficulties now, is not its politicians and it's been its people. The people are the foundation of this country. The people are what make it great. 
And I think the best thing they can do is keep living out their principles, keep working hard, keep taking care of their families, keep going to church and keep praying for deliverance from the Almighty. That has always been the case, and it will always be the case. And we shouldn't lose sight that it's not uh, politicians that make this country great. It's the American people who keep this country great. Thank you so much, Sean. I appreciate it. Uh, Keep up the fight. Let us know if there's uh, any update on this or if there's anything this audience can do to put pressure on on Barr or Durham or Trump or whoever. Um, But uh, uh, this is this is outrageous that this thing is being swept under the carpet now. It is. It is. And thank you so much for having me on and for all the work you do. It's been an honor. Thank you very much, Sean. Appreciate it. Co-founder of The Federalist. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Nicole Maliotakis, she is a congresswoman, congresswoman-elect from New York. Uh, She is part of the huge gain in the House made by mainly Republican women. Welcome to the program, Nicole. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me. So tell me, uh, first of all, I mean, New York. I mean, it, it, it was supposed to be a an absolute blue wave, and it was just the opposite. It was as close to getting to be a red wave as you could you could probably get. Well, I'll tell you, they held on to all the Republican congressional seats, uh, including that of, of Rep. Peter King, who was retired and replaced by uh, Andrew Garbarino. And it looks like we took back two seats as well, including mine, uh, defeating uh, incumbent Democrat Max Rose. So uh, this was a seat that has historically been Republican for 30 years, was lost in 2018, and we were able to take it back. It's an important seat because it is the only Republican voice in Washington from New York City. And of course, uh, there needs to be a counterbalance here to AOC, uh, in addition to someone who's going to hold Mayor de Blasio accountable from the federal level. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell me why you ran. Well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm the daughter of a Cuban refugee. My parents are immigrants. Uh, my mom's from Cuba, came in 1959 to flee the Castro regime. My, my dad is from Greece. I feel it's incredibly important that we preserve the American dream that gave me the opportunity in one generation to become a United States congressperson. It's what makes this country so truly special. Freedoms, liberties, opportunity, uh, the pursuit of happiness, that we, needs to be preserved. And right now it's under attack by individuals within the ranks of Congress uh, who want to take away those freedoms. They want to increase uh, government. They want to have a takeover uh, and have socialized medicine. They want to stack the court. They want to change the election laws, and they want to really change what makes this nation so unique. And by the way, has attracted millions of immigrants like my parents uh, for opportunities. And so I felt it was important, and I'm a state legislator now, and uh, this is, I've decided not to run for that, instead run for Congress. And I'm looking forward to, you know, taking my legislative experience to Washington, but also taking my passion uh, for this great country uh, that has done so much for, for my family. Um, and, you know, look, I, it, to me, it's very, it's very special and unique. We need to preserve that. We can't allow others to destroy that. So, Nicole, um I think part of the problem here in America, and I would imagine your mom has told you this, um, when Castro uh, was first around and came to power, 
they made it very clear he was not a Marxist. He was not a communist, um, which he was. But they that's not the way they sold it. Um, and uh, a lot of people, I think, when these things happen, they think, well, it's not going to be it won't happen here. And Americans have the it can't happen here uh, disease. And we are all in ICU on that. How do you convince people that these people are exactly who they say they are? Well, that's the whole idea. My mom always told me, uh, you know, socialism sounds like a great idea on paper, but in practice, it's uh, not only an awful idea, but it just can't be implemented. And to me, you know, socialism is, is communism light. And what happens when you run out of people's money and you want to retain the power, then you turn into a communist society. Um, what I could tell you is that uh, like we have a, an amazing new class who's going to go out there and talk about this. Uh, we have uh, what's uh, turning into a, a nice alliance, a natural alliance that's forming. We have two uh, other Cubans from Florida, Carlos Jimenez and Maria Salazar. Uh, Carlos himself came here at six years old from Cuba, and Maria, like me, is a daughter of Cuban refugee. Um, we also have somebody from the Ukraine who's, mm-hmm. uh, who fled uh, Soviet Union rule, uh, and she's a member from Indiana, Victoria Spars. We also have members from Korea who are immigrants here, and their parents left North Korea for South Korea. And I have to tell you, we have a story, and we have a message for America. We need to get out there and, 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 and let people know, particularly millennials, that think that socialism is something grand. Uh, when you start, you know, the, it's the price you pay at the end of the day for what the government says they're going to do for you, right? And, and I can tell you, I have family in Cuba. They have no aspirations, no goals, no dreams. They're told by the government what their contribution to society will be. They make, uh, what, measly 15 uh, U.S. dollars a month. Uh, and uh, that's why it's, I laugh when I hear Bernie Sanders talk about a fight for 15, you know, a, a $15 minimum wage when... In reality, in a, in a communist society or socialist society, maybe you're lucky if you make $15 a month, um, and, but you're, you're wholly owned by the government. And so, uh, you know, that, that's the thing. It's, it's something that it may, may sound to some a good idea on paper, but in practice it's a complete disaster and only brings you know, misery. It strips your freedoms and liberties, uh, and that's what we have to get out there to. The American people who may not know what it's like in other countries like we do, uh, particularly those millennials. I have a farm in uh, Idaho, and a $15 an hour wage would be mind-boggling great. In New York, a $15 a wage would be a horror show. I don't understand why this is a federal problem when every city and every state is different and should decide based on what's happening in their community and their state. Yeah, I mean, and, and that is something that is a, a, a good perspective and point of view. It needs to be understood. I mean, we are seeing the effects of New York's economy. Uh, it's not just the, the minimum wage. It's, it's a lot of other issues, government yeah. mandates. And particularly now during COVID, the way that the mayor and the governor have just shut down industries, you know, the tourist industry is just a complete disaster theater is closed. The restaurant industry has just mandate and mandate after regulation. You know, it's just, 
it really is hurting our local economy. And that's one of the things I want to work on is to help push to reopen New York's economy. We, we can do so safely. Um, we need to be smart about it. And we need cooperation from the public, uh, but also restore those jobs lost uh, across the country. And I think that that has to be a major focus, particularly for somebody from New York. You know, it's an economic engine. But there's not, there's no, I mean, we talk to people from New York and, you know, I just had some friends out from Los Angeles. First time they've left their neighborhood uh, since this whole thing began, uh, began in California. And uh, they, they came out here and, you know, we went out to a restaurant and they said, there are people in restaurants. And we're like, yeah, you know, it's about 50%, but you know, everybody's, everybody's being cool about it. And we're basically living our life and just trying to be smart. You don't get that opportunity. And the people in New York that I know, they think we're insane for for not being draconian. Yeah, well, I I could say this. New York is having a lot of problems under Mayor de Blasio and and the the, the shutdowns is one of them. But you also look at the crime has increased uh, exponentially a, a number of policies that he and the Democrats have put in place under one party rule. Um, they changed the bail laws in New York, which became a complete disaster. 3,000 individuals released, committed 9,000 more crimes, mm. murder and shootings and, and, and burglaries increased. And we got to get back on track. And the only way we're going to do that is by reversing some of the policies that have been put in place under one party rule. And that's uh, why I'm, I'm, I contribute in the sense that I'm providing alternative perspective that, that needs to be you know, considered if we're going to get New York City back on track. And we need to restore law and order. That's a, that's a big issue. It's one of the reasons, I think probably the primary reason I, I won this race was because I support law and order. I support our police. Mayor cut a billion dollars from the NYPD budget. My opponent had marched, uh, mm. marched alongside those calling for it. And uh, we're seeing crime increase and quality of life deteriorate as a result. But you won't have um, you won't have uh, control of Congress. It is much better balanced than it was. But you don't mm-hmm. have control of Congress. But but what I'm hoping you do have is a united front because the the left is splitting the Democratic Party. No, that's absolutely right. And it's refreshing to hear some Democrats actually push back and say, you know, we don't we don't we should not be the party of defunding the police. We should not be the party of socialism. Uh, and it's about time because what they're starting to realize, I think, is no matter how far the left they go, they'll never satisfy that radical fringe group. And no. um, that's something New York City needs to learn. They'll never satisfy them. In fact, when they after they cut a billion dollars from the NYPD budget, the first tweet from Ocasio-Cortez was saying defund the police means defund the police. And that's not enough. Um, and I have to say, you know, it, it, I, I agree with you. We, we need to be united. And I think that's the goal of Leader McCarthy, because we can uh, advance you know, motions to recommit and amendments if we are all on the same page and work together. Uh, so I think that's important. Also, I think, um, you know, this 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 is the smallest majority they're going to have since World War Two. And I don't think Nancy Pelosi has the votes necessarily to be speaker still. And so we have to see what happens there. But I do believe there's opportunity for us. We'll be a governing minority and and hopefully we'll pick up the the seats needed to be in the majority two years from now. That would be nice. Thank you so much. Thank you for running. Thank you for standing. And uh, the one thing that America has to get back to is our unum. We have to fight for liberty. That's the only thing that will unite us. And and I don't even know if that's possible anymore because there's a lot of people that don't believe in it anymore. But uh, 
but I do. And, uh, and I think a lot of Americans do. We're not going to come together on policies. We're going to come together on principles if we can find them again. Thank you, Nicole. Appreciate it. Thank you. My website's NicoleForNY.com. I hope your, your folks will follow me, and I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much. Uh, all right. I just feel bad talking to people who are going into Congress. I always do. Yeah, I feel you know. like, <laughs> yeah. You haven't asked anyone. Lion. Here's the lion. Right. Uh, Nicole, <laughs> insert head in mouth. You haven't asked anyone in a while how their soul is. What happened yeah. to that? It used to be every new candidate, you would always ask, how's your soul? Yeah, I thought about it. You just give it up? <laughs> I thought about it. Yeah, I kind of did. I kind of did. I mean, uh, you know, if I, if I think that there is a, a, a real pure one out there mm-hmm. who's kind of like, hi, we're going to go and we're going to change the world because now we're those people. I'm like, um, just want to ask you, how's your soul? Right. And they're always like, it's great. It's super shiny with God. And you're like, yeah. There's going to be some people who are wanting to tarnish that a lot. (laughs) This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. Voters have rejected the radical Marxist and progressives and mass this uh, last election. Americans, I think we're saying, yeah, yeah, we may not want all the crazy texting, but uh, we really don't want all the Marxist crazy either. We're going to show you tonight the Green New Deal, defund the police. It's all on the table. Uh, and they balk at us saying that they're Marxist, but we'll show you who they really are. Raphael Warnock, he is the uh, man running against uh, Kelly Loeffler. He has preached to his own congregation. He's a he's a pastor about socialism and single-payer health care. Listen. I'm so sick and tired of all of these folk talking about socialistic medicine. You're giving in to socialism. And I really get upset when I hear Christians in the midst of this debate talking about socialism. They ought to go back and read Acts chapter 2, where the Bible says that the church had all things in common. I'm trying to figure out how that... Works in a socialist <laughs> socialism. Uh, we have uh, we have somebody in studio that I think is the just one of the bravest guys uh, out there. We've had him on the program before. Uh, he comes, you know, mainly to this program for his, uh, you know, for his sports information. Right, because you know sports so much, so well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Whitlock is uh, with us now, host of Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Glenn. I, before you take me down the path, I, I just want to make I want the viewers, listeners to know how well I was treated when I arrived in Dallas. You know, I pull up and I see is that a Maybach out front? What what, 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 what does Glenn drive here? What what is that? A this Maybach? Is not it's a Ford we, uh, Ford Tempo. It's not something. We, that's not, there's a Maybach out here. No, it's but you know what Glenn sent to pick me up from the airport? What? Some little I don't even know what some little Chevrolet cruise. <laughs> the tiniest car I've been in since I was a little kid. It Look, had, we run a clown it car. Had, 
fast food trash in the back. That's me squashed into the back of the car that Glenn sent for me. So, and I sorry, pull up, and Glenn's Maybach is me. And I'm like, wow. He's sending a message. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that we picked you up in that. I would uh, next time I'll send That's you right. the nice car. I needed that. I needed, uh, <laughs> I needed to be so. Uh, uh, so Jason, you are. What is what is pushing you to be as honest as anyone? I mean, beyond what anyone dares to be now. Uh, I, I don't feel like I have a choice. Of uh, there's a couple of things when you said what's pushing me. Uh, my grandmother, Lovey Kennedy, we called her Mama Lovey, uh, greatest influence on my life, uh, raised me in a little small Baptist church. And again, my, my parents were very involved in my life. I live with my, but my grandmother was just an angel from God. Mm-hmm. And amazing things happened in her life. Not good, but some just awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, her, her father, the KKK, tried to lynch her father. And they ran her family out of Kentucky. Uh, and she was very bitter for a long time in her youth. She became a Christian, and it took every bit of bitterness and anger away from her. And she became this person we all called Mama Lovey. She was the essence of Christian love. And so that has been implanted in me a seed she put in me as a kid that is really taking root. And it doesn't, I mean, what's being planted in, I think, all of us, but in our churches, especially in the black community, what's being planted now are seeds of anger and, and vindictiveness, Marxism. I mean, it's bad. The church, the black church in particular, has been taken over by politics. And politics is God. And Barack Obama is Jesus. And uh, Donald Trump is Satan. And I deal with this within my family. Me and my mother argue about it all the time. You know, I just, I try to interpret the world through God's eyes, not through what the mainstream media is telling me. And it's, it's, but but when you go back to what's driving me, I'm really concerned about this country. And so you factor that with my mother, and then I'm looking at our country embrace socialism which is the gateway drug to communism, which is the gateway drug to full Marxism. And then I'm trying to explain to people like, hey, man, these Marxism, communism, so they're all hostile to religion and faith. Oh, yeah. And our faith is the gr- Americans, uh, religious freedom, and particularly for African-Americans, faith is why we survived mm-hmm. 300, 400 years of oppression. We're a modern miracle, and and I wrote about it this week about uh, Patrick Moynihan's The Moynihan Report in 1965, where he was like, wow, when he looked and studied black people, it was like, it's incredible, it's extraordinary that they survived this, and he didn't say this, but when I read it, my only answer is it had to be God, Mm -hmm. and to see us as a community, America, but black people in particular, become more and more secular, Scares the heck out of me, Glenn. It scares well, the heck out of me. Because if God is your God and you have an understanding of the Christian, the real Christian God, he's all about forgiveness. He's all about you live your life in a way like he would. And 
even when he's being nailed to the cross, he's asking for God to forgive them. If with government is your God, they need you to be a soldier and they need you to march and uh, make sure you browbeat anyone else to get them into the party and get them to stand in line. That is absolutely correct. What's most concerning for me as a black person, though, is we've created this black pride religion. This black what? Black pride okay. religion. Yeah. Where we're out evangelizing, literally, love us. And, and people think that's just like a harmless thing. NBA players had it on the back of their jerseys uh, this summer when they finished up their season. They're making beats by Dre. Major corporations are making commercials about you love me or, you know, mm-hmm. begging people to love blackness. And it all sounds good. But as a Christian, I should be out evangelizing love God. That will emancipate you. That will lead you in a better direction. That will be your salvation. There is no salvation in loving your skin color. That's not an anti-black statement. That's just the reality. There's no salvation if I loved my skin color. None. Again, (laughs) white pride is demonized. Mm -hmm. Black pride is celebrated. Mm -hmm. Why would white liberals would demonize any white person that was like, you got to love white people and white pride, but they would demonize any because they know that's poison. They know that that's not good for you. So who are who are the because I'm convinced Johnson, uh, President Johnson and his when they made this big turn, these guys were practically Klan members at the time. They were known racist their entire life. And even after they, quote unquote, had a conversion, they were still pretty damn racist. Who who are these liberals or who were they? I, I think for Lyndon Johnson. Having to neg- as racist as he was, uh, having to negotiate with Martin Luther King Jr. I don't think he liked that. <laughs> I think he came up. I think he came up with a solution. So this will never happen again. Yeah. And they pivoted black people and that whole civil rights movement, driven by Christians and people of religious faith. It doesn't just have to be Christian, but people that submitted to a higher power. That whole movement comes from out of the church and comes from out of faith in God, faith in a higher power. They were like, we're going to cut off that power, connect these people to politics and other things. And now black people's identity is connected to liberalism. You have to, in order to be black, you have to be liberal. And as black people, I don't think we fully understand how the label liberal is being used. It to me, and, and it'll take time, I'll say it, and you'll have to think about it for a day to fully get it. But the label liberalism is the new KKK hood. You, you just put it over your head and no one knows you're a bigot. And so you can be as bigot as you want to be. You put the KKK hood on, you can go out and kill people, burn crosses. No one knows it's you. You get to do all kinds of racism and then go back into your life and, and pretend like it wasn't you. Put the liberal hood on. You can do anything. And there is no condemnation. Anything you do is a gift from God. If you write the crime bill that black people say led to mass incarceration, Joe Biden, because he's got that liberal hood, oh, no one can. It's Joe Biden. He's a liberal. That, that, that was an unintended consequence. That was an honest mistake. There was no intent there. There was no malice. 
Juxtapose that to conservative. There's no upside to being called a conservative. If you're white, you're racist, homophobic, and just anything bad. If you're black, you're a sellout. And so I'm not even political. I've never voted. I'm not really into politics. I'm just not. It's bothered my whole family that I'm just not into it. But I am conservative because of my upbringing in the church and my upbringing as a football player, as an athlete. I am conservative. There's no upside. Oh, now I'm a sellout. Now I must not like black people. But you throw that liberal hood on, all is forgiven. You can rape, kill, uh, uh, plan abortion clinics in every black neighborhood across the country. (sighs) They're just killing them babies. That's good for them. Anything that they do is a positive if you put that liberal hood on. And I just, I'm trying to wake black people up like, hey, the KKK has no influence, no power, no real traction anymore. They've converted to liberal. And that's what's undermining black people's freedom, rise, success, elevation, and, and, and this whole thing of looking at black skin as the defining characteristic of black people. That started 400 years ago with people that enslave black people. Oh, you're black, that defines you. That means your freedom is limited in X, Y, and Z ways. Now they're coming 400 years later. The descendants, the ideological descendants of those people have, let's capitalize the B, the AP did this, the Associated Press, and all the mainstream media has followed. Black is this special characteristic and distinction that we set off in a category different than everybody else. And we we get to define what black is, and we now limit your ability. You go out and chase being black while everybody else goes out, chases freedom, chases faith in God, chases family, chases intelligence. Those, they get to go after those characteristics as they're defining. There are men, women that sit out there, you know, I want to be known as a family man. I want to be known as a Christian. I want to be known as an honest person. As black people, the only option we have is you have to be known as black. And white liberals in Hollywood, in the music industry, and in the movie and TV industry, they get to decide what black is. And then you have to live up to that standard. It is crazy. I could spend uh, a long time with you. I'd love to have you on one of the podcasts where I could just let you run. Because I think what you say, what you write is so well thought out and um, and needs to be heard. Really needs to be heard. I'm, I'm glad your voice is out there. Appreciate it, Glenn. Thank you. Uh, give me a better car next time I come. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>